Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. David Ludwig. He is a practicing endocrinologist and researcher at Boston Children's Hospital, a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and professor of nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. He has been described as an obesity warrior by Time Magazine, and his new book is going to be the topic of our conversation today. It's titled, Always Hungry? Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. Dr. Ludwig, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Great to be with you today. Well, we started a conversation before the program started, and we will explore some of those topics, but this is truly a groundbreaking book from my perspective as a dietitian for 30-plus years because it conflicts with some of the issues that I've always held to be true and that dietitians have probably promoted for too many years, like a calorie is a calorie and so forth. So we're going to explore that. But first, I want to ask you, how did you become interested in endocrinology in particular, and why obesity? Well, thank you for that question. You know, I began my medical training and residency in the early 90s, just as the obesity epidemic was reaching full steam. And I also became interested in endocrinology because that's the field that connects everything together in metabolism and biology. Every hormone in the body affects every other. And in the case of children, you know, you can't grow or develop, progress through puberty if sometimes if just a single hormone is, is missing or is, uh, is off. And I also found a remarkable connection between these two fields of obesity and endocrinology or the study of hormones. Because we're used to, so used to thinking of food as a conveyor belt for calories and nutrients, you know, a way of delivering calories to the body and the nutrients that the body needs for, you know, its chemical reactions. But from a hormonal perspective, food is just so much more. It's information. When you eat foods with different kinds of combinations of protein, fat, and carbohydrate, Hormones and metabolism change in remarkably different ways that affect literally how our very genes are expressed and activated in tissues throughout the body. And that difference, that not the calorie content of food or not the nutrients per se, but how that food alters our hormones and metabolism has everything to do with whether we are struggling to maintain weight loss or naturally can enjoy easy long-term weight management, whether we're suffering from chronic diseases or lead a life of relatively free of chronic diseases, good energy or poor energy. And so my career has been to explore these ideas in the research laboratory, translate them into the clinic and patient care. And I've recently had the great opportunity to speak to the public through bringing these ideas in my new book, Always Hungry. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that we both launched into our careers at about the same time. And I recall studying obesity for the bulk of my career and really struggling with this question, you know, why did Americans become so fat? Why did we gain so much weight? How would you answer that question? Well, the standard solution is we're, you know, just eating too much, eating too much, taking in too many calories, and not burning off those calories. This is the standard approach, and it 
leads to the low-fat diet of the last 40 years. That's right. Um, that if you just want to lose weight, you just have to eat less. And since fat has more calories than protein or carbohydrate, a low-fat diet should be the easiest way to deal with the problem. There's just a few issues here that people you know, in the field, leaders in the field, sometimes ignore. First, this approach simply doesn't work for most people. Yes, you can lose weight by restricting calories for a few days or weeks or if you're very disciplined a few months. But by six months or a year, very few people, less than 10%, can keep that weight off and maintain it for the long term. And to add insult to injury, this calorie in, calorie out view blames people for that failure. You know, if it's just a matter of self-control, just eating less, and getting a little more exercise, then anybody should be able to do it. And if you can't, you must lack discipline, willpower, or maybe even have a character problem. This thinking explains why people with obesity are blamed for their weight problem and suffer bias, discrimination, stigma in ways that would never happen for other medical problems. In fact, what we now know and has been really clear for a long time based on research from the laboratory is that body weight is more about biology than willpower and that we need a much more sophisticated approach that understands how to get at the underlying drivers of weight gain. We need to stop blaming people for this particular medical problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about some of those underlying mechanisms. And the three, well, diet, of course, is a big focus of this book, and we'll get into that. But the other three components that you bring forth that I think don't get enough emphasis in all of the work that certainly dietitians do have to do with sleep, stress, and movement. And I remember hearing a researcher speak about the importance of sleep, and she said that not getting adequate sleep was actually a greater predictor of glucose control than physical activity. And I'm glad to see that you too have focused on sleep. So let's talk about those three components. Let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about movement because along with the calorie cutting, we've also been told that, you know, just exercise more. Kids are gaining weight because they're just not getting enough physical activity. That's the big claim by the soft drink industry, for example. So let's talk about each of those. Great. If you don't mind, let me start just by providing a little background about our dietary approach, because I think that provides the foundations for understanding why physical activity, sleep, and stress reduction would be so powerful beyond the ways that we usually think about yeah, it. Yeah, let's do. Okay, so what we've seen over the last 40 years that obesity rates keep ticking up year after year, even though our genes haven't changed. Something is triggering our bodies to hold on to store too many calories. And that's not just a problem of willpower. We can clearly see that when we, when somebody goes on a diet, cuts back calories, not only do they get hungry, that's a hard biological signal to ignore for the long term, but even if you could, your metabolism slows down. The body fights back against weight loss. Why are our bodies defending a weight that's 30 or 35 pounds heavier then in the 1970s. So the basic premise of my book, Always Hungry, is that the problem is too much of the hormone insulin. Now I call insulin the miracle grow for your fat cells, just not the sort of miracle you want to be happening in your body. Mm-hmm. What insulin does is program fat cells to store calories. 
That's just endocrinology 101. How do we see that? Well, if a, if a child with type 1 diabetes comes to attention, so that type 1 diabetes is where the body can't make enough insulin, that child will have invariably lost weight until getting treatment, no matter how much he or she's eating, three, five, or 7,000 calories. Without insulin, you can't store fat and you start to lose weight. Put that kid on the right amount of insulin and weight returns to normal. Give that child too much insulin and weight, excessive weight gain predictably occurs. If you don't have diabetes, the fastest way to change your insulin levels is with the amount and type of carbohydrate you eat. And so the basic problem is that during these, the low fat craze, we got rid of fat, but we replaced them with all these processed carbohydrates, white bread, white rice, potato products, prepared breakfast cereals, cookies, crackers, anything that was fat free. The problem is these digest into sugar and raise insulin levels more than any other food. You eat them, that insulin tells the fat cells to suck up those calories they feast, but the rest of the body starves. And if you try to cut back, eat less, you only make that situation worse. That's why it's so difficult to lose weight on a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. You're mm. working against your biology. So we recommend a, a luscious, high-fat diet with all of these tasty fats we were told to banish from our plate, you know, nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, rich sauces and spreads, avocado, real dark chocolate. We use these foods because they're delicious. They don't raise insulin levels. They help you get rid of the processed carbs. When you eat them, your insulin levels fall, and your fat cells open up, and your body floods with those pent-up calories. Hunger decreases. Metabolism speeds up, and you can lose weight with your body's cooperation. That's so interesting. Now, to answer your question, so then, what about physical activity? Well, physical activity doesn't shift calorie balance all that much. It's kind of a, it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get on the treadmill for 20 grueling minutes <laughs> and replace those calories in literally one second, in one minute with a, a handful of raisins. Right. That's all it takes. But what physical activity does is it synergizes with diet to improve insulin sensitivity to calm down fat cells. So if you stay active, especially with enjoyable physical activities, not these grueling workouts, your effort in nutrition goes further. And then you add on top of that stress relief, so you lower your stress hormones, measures to, to improve quality sleep, and we have a whole program for that in the book. And these further help your fat cells calm down, shifting your body into weight loss mode. Mm-hmm. And also sleep. Let's talk about the role of sleep. Right. Well, you know, sleep in, when we're sleep deprived, it's certainly hard to make the right decisions. You know, it'll be easier to give in to all of those unhealthful temptations that surround us and the, that the food industry advertises to us in all sorts of insidious ways. So that ability to make the right decisions is eroded when we're sleep deprived. We'll feel less energetic and less likely to get out and be active, more likely to collapse on the couch. And sleep deprivation also destabilizes hormones in a way that makes fat cells very hungry. 
So, you know, not only do we make the wrong decisions, but those wrong decisions have greater impact on our biology when we're sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. And then we notice an increase in caffeine consumption along with that sleep deprivation. I think there must be a coffee shop on every corner in any town USA. But also in your book, at least in the phase one section, and then there are three phases I should let our listeners know of the diet that you recommend. And in phase one, you speak specifically about the role of caffeine and how that increases insulin levels. Can we talk about that a bit? Well, we have a three-phase program. Phase one is we call it a boot camp for your fat cells, but not for you because Mm -hmm. during every phase of the program, we encourage people to eat until they're satisfied and snack when hungry. You know, we, we give our motto is forget calories, focus on food quality, and let your body do the rest. You determine what your body eats. Your body determines how much food it needs. So when you give it the right foods, it becomes satisfied with many fewer calories as insulin levels decline. So that phase one is to jumpstart the process with a very high fat diet, 50% fat, which, believe me, tastes delicious. Every chef knows that uh, fat is a great way to make recipes really tasty, very satisfying and filling, but we don't get rid of carbohydrates entirely. We have about 25% carbohydrate, so you still you know, get to enjoy fruits, and legumes, some vegetables and the like. We just have people give up sugar and grain products for two weeks, but you really don't miss them with all of these luscious high-fat foods. And then we transition to phase two, which is about 40% fat. That's reminiscent of traditional Mediterranean diets. Stay in phase two as your body weight comes down to its new lower set point. And then phase three is an opportunity to develop your own individualized plan. Once you've lost weight and improved your metabolism, many people can tolerate a bit more processed carbohydrate. You can start to reintroduce some of the the pastas and a few sweet treats and the like depending upon your body's ability to handle it. So we give you tracking tools and symptom checkers to see how much you can tolerate without tipping back into those cycles of hunger, craving, and weight gain. And so you find your tipping point, and then that's your plan. If you can tolerate a little bit more leeway, why not? We believe in maximum results for minimum of deprivation. But for some people, any amount of the processed carbohydrates will send them into a sort of a vicious cycle. And for them, the fleeting pleasures of processed carbohydrates just pale against the sense of control and good feeling from eating the right foods. Sure. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. David Ludwig, endocrinologist and researcher at Harvard Medical School and professor of nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. We are talking about his new book, Always Hungry, Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. I want to go back to the issue of caffeine for a moment because... There is a comment in the book about how caffeine contributes to insulin resistance. Let's define for our listeners what insulin resistance is and how caffeine, which is so prevalent, really ubiquitous in our society, how that plays a role in contributing to insulin resistance. Yes. In phase one, that's the two-week boot camp for your fat cells. We have people limit caffeine to a couple of drinks of coffee a day. 
you can have tea, tea contains less, so you can have a little bit more of that. We also ask people to give up alcohol, again, just for two weeks. Caffeine has very complicated effects on our biology, and some people can tolerate it quite well. Other people really can't, and we know that genetics has a, a significant role to play here. But acutely, caffeine causes insulin resistance, and mm. one of the primary the primary focus of our meal plan is to lower insulin levels by helping the body tissues become more sensitive to insulin. The right tissues become more sensitive to insulin. And as insulin levels drop, then the fat cells don't get overstimulated by these high insulin levels. And we find that for many people, giving up caffeine or just reducing it, not overdoing it for a while, can help this process move forward. Yeah, that's a really important point, I think, because in addition to the coffee shops, I see teenagers in particular targeted with some of these high-caffeinated beverages. And so I think it's important for us to understand how all of these dietary components contribute to our rising weight. Let's move on to, well, there are two burning issues on my plate right now. One is your mention of full-fat products, and I am so happy to hear you say that because I love putting half and half in my coffee. But we're also dealing with mixed messages from, say, my own professional association, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. We've got the American Heart Association. We've got the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. We've got programs that are in place through our public school system, which promotes skim milk only, or our WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children, which promotes low-fat milk. And yet, as an endocrinologist, you've got good data supporting the fact that whole-fat dairy products may not be the enemy we once believed them to be. Well, the public has been told to fear fat for 40 years. Right. on really a complete absence of evidence. Yeah. We now know quite convincingly that low-fat diets, as they've been practiced in the United States, are about the worst way to lose weight. We have what's called meta-analyses. These are comprehensive reviews where independent scientists assemble all of the publications that have ever been uh, in the world's literature that fit certain criteria. Uh, about five of them have come out in the last few years. And each of them found that low-fat diets are demonstrably inferior to all higher-fat comparison diets, being be they a Mediterranean diet or a low-carb diet, or the granddaddy of all low-carb diets, the ketogenic diet. Right. So this is very this is very clear. And recognizing this, the USDA Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee a couple of years ago recommended against any limit for dietary fat, and the USDA mostly followed suit. They quietly removed the explicit limit on fat intake that's been present in recommendations for decades. So unfortunately, the low-fat diet was launched with great fanfare and ended very quietly so that the public remains confused and doesn't recognize that even the, the leaders of the profession are now understanding that this was a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes mistakes don't get acknowledged quite so explicitly. But it's not just body weight. It's also cardiovascular disease. A high-fat diet is good for your waist, but it's great for your heart. And let me just tell you about, can I tell you quickly about two studies? Please. So one is called Look Ahead, which was a low-fat diet for people with type 2 diabetes. And of course, type 2 diabetes is a major risk factor for heart disease. The study was done 
to biased to favor the low fat diet because they got more intensive attention and treatment and the control group didn't. They had to end the study early when a preliminary analysis showed no benefit of the low fat diet for heart disease and no prospect that no matter how long they would have continued the study that there would ever be a benefit. Now compare that to Predimet. There was a study done in Spain of a high fat Mediterranean diet. Now they had three groups. One got an ounce of nuts a day per person. The second group got a liter of olive oil a week. A liter of olive oil a week per person. Now that's a nightmare from a low-fat calorie balance perspective. And the third group was a, a low-fat control. They also had to end the study early, but this time for the opposite reason. This initial analysis that is done by the statisticians showed such a great effect of the higher-fat diets in reducing cardiovascular disease that the study's point was proven years ahead of expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you describe both of those studies in the book, just in case our listeners want to read more about that. The other component that I want to bring forth with regard to fat is that in preparing for this interview, I just did a quick Google search on different dietary recommendations that are pretty much in the news, or the Mayo Clinic, for example, is a good source for information. Again, the dietary guidelines. And we still hear experts honing in really on saturated fat without perhaps looking at the different fatty acids that make up the different the different components of saturated fat. So when you're dealing with a public who has been so trained by, say, the American Heart Association to restrict saturated fat in particular, and yet you've got a book here that's recommending whole milk, how do you negotiate those kinds of conversations with a confused public? Well, you know, that's why we, the first part of the book, first 100 pages, is the science. And I want, yeah. we included hundreds of references so that readers, if they want to, they can look to the primary sources. They don't have to take my word for it. But yeah. um, in terms of fats, just like carbohydrates are not all alike, you know, both an apple and table sugar both get their primary source of calories from sugar, but they're clearly not the same for our health, for our metabolism. And the same is true for fats. And saturated fats, we now know, are not public health enemy number one, the way we thought they were. Sure. But that doesn't mean that they're a health food either. And the unsaturated fats, like the monounsaturated fats in olive oil and the polyunsaturated fats, such as in fish, are very helpful. From a, an overall perspective, saturated fat is sort of neutral. And there's a lot of evidence that it is less harmful than sugar. So, you know, when you eat more bread and less butter, you're probably not doing yourself any benefit. Of course, we want the highest quality carbs and the highest quality fats. But that doesn't mean to banish saturated fats from our plate. It also doesn't mean that butter is a health food. Mm -hmm. You need to take a, a moderate approach that's based on the science. Sure. Well, I really appreciate this book because it does force me to evaluate my own professional recommendations over the years and question why haven't they been working. So I, I greatly appreciate this. And I most appreciate your last chapter, your, actually your epilogue, Ending the Madness and Healthy Food as a Matter of National Security. And I could not agree more with some of the recommendations you make. And with just a few minutes left, I want to put the ball back in your court. 
and I want you to bring forth any kinds of recommendations that you would like to see our country take moving forward. Well, thank you. I begin by saying you know, it also takes a community. You know, even if we get the science just right, which is the aim of my book, and to help steer us away from the low-fat debacle that you know is still affecting our, our you know our consciousness, onto a more effective approach that people can eat delicious foods, lose weight, and not have that struggle between mind and metabolism. But even with the, the best science and the best recipes, we still need support of a community. That's the first step. You know, lifestyle change can be difficult in our modern environment. And that's why we've created a Facebook group called the Official Always Hungry Book Community, which is free and non-commercial. We've got about 10,000 people following our, our program, giving each other support. We offer new recipes. We problem solve, but most importantly, we support each other. And so I invite your listeners to come join us. And then we need to join together to make the social environment healthy. I mean, there's so many influences now in the social and political environment that puts profit ahead of the common good. And we need to push back. The two things, uh, the two last points that I make in that 10-point plan is to vote with your fork and to vote with your ballot, to vote with the ballot. Mm -hmm. Every time you buy food, every time you eat food, you're giving a powerful message to the food industry. And the food industry is can make money from healthy foods just like they can from unhealthful foods. If we all started rejecting the processed industrial junk, that's going to give a very strong message to the food industry. The ones that don't adapt will go bankrupt, and the ones who do will get our business. And so it's a powerful political statement when you go to the supermarket, when you go to the restaurant, or when you go to the local community farms. And secondly, vote with the ballot. We need politicians in Washington and in the state and local levels that are going to put health ahead of special interest and we need to send that message to our elected officials. And I hope with your Facebook page, which I did not visit, I visited your excellent website, which I want to recommend to our listeners. It's simply drdavidludwig.com, and that's drdavidludwig.com, and I'll make that link available to us on the website. But I hope that you will also give us policy action alerts so that we can all act as a community and know when we need to call our state and national representatives and senators so that we can put more dollars into our food system where it counts, for example, with school lunch. Absolutely. You know, I, I was a little late to, uh, I'm over 50, so I'm a little late to the social media world, but I've really now embraced it, discovered the, the power of it. I, I post every day on my Facebook page, uh, You'll see the links on my website. And you know, whenever there's an opportunity either for us to learn more about how food affects our body or there's an opportunity for us to work together to detoxify the environment, to put health first, especially for the children. Exactly. This is the ultimate source of national security is a healthy, engaged population. You know, if we're struggling with type 2 diabetes, the billions of dollars of healthcare costs, the suffering, 
what a terrible waste and what a terrible distraction. Thank you, Dr. Ludwig. I want to thank you for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, Dr. Ludwig, thank you for being my guest and thank you for this terrific book, Always Hungry, Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. The time has come for this book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.